You're listening to the North Richland Hills Baptist Church Sermon Audio Podcast. If you'd like more information about our church, go to nrhbc.org. What a joy it is to be with you uh, tonight. I mean that sincerely. It's been uh, a few years since I've been here and was able to serve as the interim. And uh, your church, as you know, was just so kind to us. I don't know if you remember this, but uh, Shepherd uh, was born while we were in the interim here and talked to ladies down front that threw him a baby shower. And so it worked. He came. He's nine now. He's down here. It's hard to believe that was nine years ago. But you just showed us just incredible uh, encouragement during that time. And I just can't thank you enough for that. It really has a lot to do with what we're going to talk about uh, tonight. So Ashley, my wife, sends her greetings. Uh, I was leaving and I told her what I was going to talk about and she said, well, be funny. That was her one encouragement to be, be funny. So, so take your Bible and turn to the book of Lamentations. Now listen, now you know why she said be funny because she knew I was going to be in Lamentations. So look at Lamentations chapter 3. Uh, I want to share not so much an exposition for scripture, but to talk about this topic about families in crisis. Uh, a few years ago, and, and it really began when we were here, God put us on a four-year journey of a tremendous crisis in our family. And I just want to share with you what I learned through that process, and I hope it's somewhat organized tonight, but I just want to share what I learned through that process, what God taught our family, and at least for us, it took four years to be able to really articulate it, and I've never shared it really in this form tonight, but just want you to hear my heart as we talk about crisis and how God leads a family in crisis. Jeremiah, or excuse me, Lamentations chapter 3 represents... Uh, perhaps the most profound crisis in all the Bible. Here's what it is. God has brought his people into the promised land, out of Egypt into the promised land. Through the leadership of David and Solomon, they established this profound kingdom. The kingdom, because the people turned to idols, was divided, the north and the south. Uh, The northern kingdom was taken first by the Assyrians, and then later the southern kingdom, Judah, is about to be taken. But before it is taken, God sends the prophet Jeremiah. And it's one on hundreds of thousands. The religious establishment wants to worship idols, not God. The political establishment wants to worship idols, not God. And all the people do. And it's like this massive train wreck is about to happen. And the only thing stopping it is this little puny prophet with his hand on the handbrake, right? Like, I'm going to pull this. You can just see his little bicep working as he's trying to stop this train. And because it's going down and he's on it, he goes down with it. And it's horrible. He's tortured. He's abused. He's imprisoned. He's maligned. He's gossiped about. And he just faces everything you can imagine. Not because he was disobedient to God, but because he was obedient to God. And in his act of faith, it led to tremendous, tremendous suffering. And uh, man, I really do need to be funny. This is a depressing message so far. So let's read. It gets worse. Look at Lamentations chapter 3. Look at verse 1. I am the man who has seen affliction under the rod of his wrath. I'm going to stop there and just say, when it says rod of his wrath, I I just can't help but think that he's intentionally using this language that's lifted from Psalm chapter 2 and verse 9, where God, all the world is coming against God, and he sends his anointed one, and the anointed one beats them with a rod of his wrath. And so what he's saying is, is God has made me his enemy. Verse 2, 
He has driven me and brought me into darkness without any light. Surely against me he turns his hand again and again the whole day long. He has made my flesh and my skin waste away. He has broken, broken my bones. He has besieged and enveloped me with bitterness and tribulation. He has made me to dwell in darkness like the dead of long ago. He has walled me about so that I cannot escape. He has made my chains heavy. If I call and cry for help, he shuts out my prayer. He has blocked my ways and blocks of stones. He's made my paths crooked. And it gets really interesting in verse 10. He is a bear lying in wait for me, a lying in hiding. He turned aside my steps and tore me to pieces. He has made me desolate and he's bent his bow and set me as his target for his arrow. In other words, God, Jeremiah said, Jeremiah's writing the book of Lamentations, Um, is hunting me. God is hunting me to take me out. And so there are five chapters. There's a song book, a song of laments. And it always strikes me that interesting that God is not uncomfortable with this type of super emotional language. One third of the Psalms, the Hebrew songbook, this Jesus' songbook that he's saying from, one third of them are songs of complaints, of mourning, of laments. So God is not uncomfortable with that emotion. And while this emotion is real, it doesn't describe reality. In other words, he feels something that's, that's real, but it's detached from reality. And it's at this point, this is the cross section where I feel like my story enters in and your story is entering in. Because there's sometimes I feel emotions that I know intellectually don't represent God, but I just don't understand it. I mean, I don't have the intellectual gravitas of your pastor who studies apologetics and these type of things. And so I know intellectually all the arguments about the problem of evil and the problem of suffering. I think I understand those fairly well, but when you're in the middle of it, it just feels like hard. It feels like God's hunting you. And he used this graphic language in verse seven, he walls me about. In other words, you're not going anywhere. And for about four years, I lived in Isaiah 41. Comfort, comfort uh, my people, says your God. God, what are you, when are you going to alleviate my suffering? It's so hard. Well, Lamentations doesn't give us the direct answer to the big picture because we have something that Jeremiah doesn't have. We have the full canon of Scripture, right? The whole big picture. And so what Jeremiah didn't articulate that we understand is that Jeremiah wasn't being punished by God, but we would say this, he was under the discipline of the Lord. That's what I want to talk about for the morning. Let's talk about for a few minutes the discipline of the Lord. What is the discipline of the Lord? Because it is not some kind of thing in the footnotes of the Bible. It's all over the Bible. All over the Bible. So what is the discipline of the Lord? All of us are going to walk through it. So what is it? How can we be prepared for it? And what do we do with it? Well, let me make three observations about the discipline of the Lord. And we're going to park on the third one. The first one is this. Is that discipline is not punishment. This is extremely important. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, then God does not punish you for your sins. Because what happens is God has anger towards your sins, and here you are, but Jesus Christ stands between, as we sung our living hope, and as God is sending his wrath toward us, Jesus stands and he intervenes for the wrath of God on our behalf, and all the sins that God is angry about are still punished, Jesus takes the punishment and not us. If you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, then there is no intervention. All the wrath of God that he feels towards your sin is very real and it is coming. But if you're a believer, all that's been absorbed by Christ. And so God will not punish me 
for that which he has already punished Jesus. Jesus took all the punishment. So that's why we read the Apostle Paul say, Romans 8, 1, there's therefore now no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus for the law of sin has been done away with uh, because of the law of the Spirit. He's removed that debt and that penalty from us. So when God, and there's discipline in your life, when things are going wrong and you think God is messing with you, it's not punishment. We might use that word interchangeably, different, interchangeably, understand that, but theologically, biblically, worlds apart. We're not being punished for our sins. We worry we go to hell, but we are being disciplined. So the second thing about discipline, discipline is not punishment. Here's the second thing. Discipline can correct. Discipline can correct. And this is what kind of messes with us because we have trouble and we think, what did I do wrong? It's like when you get pulled over for a speeding ticket, have you done that? And uh, you think, oh God, what did I do wrong? Why are you treating me like this? You know what I did wrong? I was speeding. I just... That's what has the natural consequences of that action. But discipline can correct. And so this is, can trouble us, but it's just true. First Corinthians chapter 11 talks about taking the Lord's Supper in an unworthy may, way. In other words, just treating it lightly. And the discipline of the Lord comes upon us in a corrective type way uh, in the form of sickness. James 5 says that if anyone is sick and they want to have the elders come to the church, we've done this, perhaps you've done this, and pray over them, pray over them that the Lord may heal them, and if they have sinned, those sins will be forgiven them, meaning that not all sickness is a result of sin, there's a world of truth in that preposition if, but it's possible that some sickness could be the result of sin. So discipline of the Lord can correct us. But here's the third thing I want to say about discipline, and perhaps the most important, is that discipline is designed to instruct us. So corrective discipline, yes, that exists. It's there in Scripture, all over Scripture. But also, it's important to remember that discipline exists to instruct us, instructive discipline. And so from here, for the rest of our time together, I want to turn to several Scriptures. This will feel more like a Bible study as we think about the instructive discipline of the Lord. So turn to John chapter 15, and if you want to, don't want to turn to all these passages, that's fine. You can just thumb around in your Bible and then look up. I won't know, uh, but I'm just going to go through these, and we're going to come back and end in Lamentations in a little bit. So we're talking about the instructive discipline. How does the Lord use discipline to instruct us? And I want you to think about this, especially if you're suffering or you've gone through something, you've felt these emotions that Jeremiah has. Uh, don't write this off. Think about what the Lord says about this. John chapter 15, verse 1, Jesus gives us a metaphor. I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away and every branch, watch this, that does bear fruit, he prunes. Now this is the most counterintuitive thing in the world. There are whole movements directed toward disagreeing, Christian movements disagreeing with this verse. The one who produces fruit, bears fruit, he prunes. What's pruning? Well, it's cutting back. Well, why would God take someone who's being productive and cut them back? Well, just read the rest of the verse, that it may bear more fruit. So until God does pruning in our lives, there's a limit to our productivity. Look at verse three. He says to his disciples, already you are clean because of the word that I've spoken to you. So there's a way, I think there's a hint that you're expediting some of the discipline of the Lord the more we know the word of God and responsive and obedient. But the point is here is that when suffering enters our life, 
And our first intuition is to say, God, you could have controlled this, but you didn't control this. Why are you mad at me? You understand, according to John 15, this could be God's way of saying, I'm so proud of you. You're, you're doing so well. I see the fruit production in your life. It's remarkable. Now here's some suffering that's gonna make you even more productive. Now, we, we've made tremendous advances in technology, and in communication and evangelical faith in the Baptist world and all these type of things, but we have failed at this one thing, at teaching our people in our churches that suffering is normative for the Christian. It's, it's the expectation of the believer that will suffer. So look at Hebrews chapter 12. Of course, it's a familiar passage of scripture, Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12, I'm going to begin reading in verse 5. Hebrews chapter 12, in verse 5. Hebrews 12, 5. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addressed you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the ones he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son there hurt? is there whom his father does not discipline. If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. Now, I'm not confident that this is talking about corrective discipline, like we've done something wrong and the Lord corrects us. It may just be talking about instructive discipline. Meaning, instructive discipline is this. At night, I I tell my children, I have three children, 16, 12, and nine, to go to bed. Every night, it's shocking. Like, (laughs) what? I said, Dad, I have so much homework. I, I know that, I'm aware. I've watched you put it off all night. I'm aware that you have homework. It's clear to me because obviously you haven't done it. But I make them go to bed. And they give me a look like, well, why, I don't understand, why do you hate me? Why do you, do you just want to hit me too? Why do you hate, well, I don't hate them, I love them. But I'm giving them something they don't like, not because I'm correcting any wrong behavior. I'm not correcting anything, I'm instructing them. Because I love them. And so shouldn't it stand to reason that the Father, this is the logic of Hebrews 12, that the Father who loves us with a perfect love would also allow us instruction inside of our life that instructs us. Now, look at verse 11. This is where we left off reading. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness, watch this, to those who have been trained by it. What does it mean to be trained by it? Uh, Don't turn to it, but listen to this very familiar passage of scripture in Romans chapter 5 says this, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings knowing that the suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope. So the promise of Romans chapter 5 and the promise of Hebrews chapter 12 and the promise of many other passages we can turn to is that there's something good on the other side. But it's not 
automatic. He says in there, qualifies as if we're trained by it. So when the Lord allows discipline into our life, there's a right response that allows it to have the fruit producing effect that we want. And so since none of us, Hebrews 12, are escaping it, we're all under the discipline of the Lord. And it's never going away till we see him in, in glory. Shouldn't it stand to reason that she would brace ourselves and look at life with a way, a template, some type of handle on this to say, okay, this is the discipline of the Lord. Here's what I'm gonna do in this moment. Which is really what I wanna talk about and where really Lamentations 3 is helpful. So please go back to Lamentations chapter 3. The structure of this passage is chapter 3 from 1 all the way down to verse 18 is the big problem, the crisis. Verses 19 through 39 tell us the first response and then verses 40 through the end of it given the second response. The first response, just looking at this at the overview, is to remember what the Lord has done. That's the first response. The second response is to return. Verse 40, let us examine our ways and return to the Lord. So look at verse 19. And let's keep reading. Remember my affliction and my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall. My soul continually remembers and is bowed down within me. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. What an incredible promise of God. This rose embedded in this very, very thorny book. Look at verse 25. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, for the soul that seeks him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. And here it is, verse 27. Underline this verse, highlight it, circle it. It is good for a man that he bear the yoke in his youth. So I think verse 27, if there is a key in this passage on how to respond to suffering, all the New Testament language of the fruit producing, the great righteousness that it produces, is all kind of summed up in this practical application of verse 27 of doing this, bear the yoke in your youth. And you might say, well, pastor, that, that, that train has sailed for me. <laughs> you know, that, um, I, I don't, I'm not young anymore, but you're younger than you will be next week, right? You're younger now. So the point is not youth as an age, although that's what he's saying, the point is, Learn to bear the yoke now. And what is a yoke? Well, a yoke is something that they would, agricultural metaphor, they'd put on an oxen, uh, they would put on a donkey, and maybe you would have a team, two oxen or donkeys there on a yoke, and they would pull something. The yoke was hard, the yoke was heavy, but there's the only way to make it produce and do what it needed to do was to have that yoke put upon us. And so he's saying there's a yoke of discipline that we put on, and if you learn how to bear up now, you can bear up later. So how do we get through this suffering? Well, realize that the Lord is not trying to punish you, Hebrews 12, he's trying to parent you. God's not mad at you. So bear up now so you can bear up later. Bear up now so you can bear up later. I read those remarkable passages of scripture over the weekend. I'd, sometimes God puts new verses in the Bible that weren't previously there, have you had that experience? And the one that he just put in the Bible is Philippians 2, 8, where it says, uh, I don't turn to it, I'll just quote it, but 
that he came and humbled himself in the form of a man, that's verse seven. And then verse eight, being found as a man, then he went to the cross. So that little phrase, being found, it's just one Greek word, being found, what does that mean? Well, that's Bethlehem to Calvary. That's Luke two to Luke 24. That's his whole life. So what was that being found? What well, was this, this really extremely difficult time where Jesus was perfectly sinless, perfectly in the will of God, and totally maligned, misunderstood, and eventually persecuted and killed and died. And what was he doing? Well, although he didn't have to learn anything in that sense, he was under the discipline of the Lord. He was walking into obedience to the Father. He was walking out what it meant when he prayed in Luke 24, Lord, not my will, but what? Your will be done. He was remaining there. He was bearing down then so he could bear up later. There's another passage of scripture that's really, really encouraged me. And you don't have to turn to it. I'll just read Proverbs chapter one and verse 23. This is easy to remember, one, two, three. So Proverbs 1, 23. Proverbs, of course, is written by Solomon, principally to his young son. And this is what Proverbs 1, 23 says. If you turn at my reproof, now God is not speaking here, it's wisdom. So pretend wisdom is a person and wisdom is saying to this young man, if you turn at my reproof. And the preposition there, at, could also be translated to. If you turn to my reproof. I have this mental image of a child turning into a spanking. Dad, you missed a spot. Let me back in a little bit more. This is the idea. Turn to, who turns to, why would you want to turn to reproof? It doesn't even make sense. Listen to this glorious promise. Wisdom says to you and I, if you turn to my reproof, behold, I will pour out my spirit to you. Now, as a preacher, when I read that, I immediately go to Acts chapter two, right? Because Peter stood up and he talked about the day is now here that Joel two prophesied about that God's gonna pour out his spirit. So there's Joel two, Acts two connection, but that's not the, it's not talking about the outpouring of the spirit. So just, I said that to say, don't think about that. So don't think about what I just said. Um, Behold, I will pour out my spirit to you. I will make my words known to you. Now let me just read that again. I will pour out my spirit to you. I will make my words known to you. This is Hebrew poetry. What they did is they didn't make things rhyme like we think of poetry. They would give parallel thoughts. So I will pour out my spirit to you. What does that mean? Well, it's defined by the next phrase, I will make my words known to you. In other words, if we embrace God's discipline, not with this crazy notion of his hatred, not this crazy notion that he's displeased with us, but if we approach his discipline as a loving father, there is a whole tear of wisdom rolled up in that. The, the spirit of wisdom that we want doesn't come through intellectual gravitas, getting into more books. It comes from embracing the discipline of the Lord. And saying, Lord, I, I receive it from your hand. And perhaps... The most righteous person in his day said it well when he says, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And you may be thinking, okay, that's great, but what is, um, what God has done to me, can you tell me if it was corrective or if it was instructive? (laughs) Was Was God trying to fix something? Well, let me share a story with you and then I wanna share some good news with you. I think it's good news. The story is um, that I, I caught a neurological disease. I'll let it know y'all know this story because I've shared it from here. And the next day after I caught it, I didn't know I had it. I preached right here. It was right toward the end of the interim. It was in March 
of uh, 2012. Shep was a few months old. And it was diagnosed with Guillain-Barre syndrome, was in the hospital about six days. It took about a year to get a full recovery. So this is where the myelin coating around your nerves uh, is eaten away by your nervous system because it thinks it's attacking a virus, but it's not. It's actually attacking itself. And so about a year uh, to get back to normal. And just a great story. A lot of people don't recover. I recovered great doctors. Uh, Seminary was so kind to us. This church was so kind to us. It was wonderful. What we didn't know what was happening is that Uh, My healing was killing my wife. Uh, She was um, fighting all the insurance companies. Uh, She actually got money back from a hospital. Have you ever heard anybody doing that? It tells you a little bit about my wife. I can tell you that story another time. She was nursing our son, who was a few months old at the time, and then raising, homeschooling, and and, uh, also sending to a university model school, our two older children. And it just overwhelmed her. And so what we think had happened is that she already had uh, this problem in kind of a latent form, and then it just came out. And so she just went down. And for about three years, was just incapacitated in bed, quite a bit, um, all these type of things. And then over the last probably three years after that is a functional person. You see her now and just wouldn't know anything is wrong, but then it presents itself like many autoimmune diseases that she just has to rest all the time. And it's sad because she's, she's a super outgoing person. I shouldn't tell you that she said this, but she said, why couldn't this disease happen to someone with a bad personality? Because... <laughs> You know, they wouldn't care, you know. She's bubbly and wants to be with people, but she can't, you know, all these type of things. Um, And so I I hesitate even to share that because we don't have cancer, no one died, God's been so gracious to us and all this. But but I just share that to say, for there was at least four years where I felt like Jeremiah 1, 1 through 18. God, what do you, life decisions had to be made differently, the kind of, you know, ministry trajectory I thought God was going to lead me to is clear that we had to adjust and accommodate there. Her parents stepped in where I couldn't help, limited and help. So all these changes had to be made to our life. And they said, God, where are you in all of this? And um, so at the end of that, God was leading us to Little Rock to go to Emmanuel Baptist Church where I'm pastoring. And we are in the last conversation of the committee. Lord, should we go there or not? And Shep and I, who was four at the time, went to Falls Creek Baptist Encampment in Davis, Oklahoma to speak to the Baptist Student Union group or BCM group of University of Oklahoma. And I shared some of these thoughts in a forum then. And that last night, Sunday night driving out, the Lord, I felt, said to me, okay, look, if this church calls you back, Emmanuel, you're back and forth having this conversation, just, you know, go. You have freedom to talk. Finish that conversation. Don't worry about it anymore. And I felt like I was only free to move on to the next thing once I had learned these lessons. Does that make sense? So I, I hate to share experience. That to me is normative. I just feel like it was so clear. That was like a landmark moment. Okay, you can go on to the next thing, but you had to be able to articulate what it is that you've been through then. So back to the question, is God correcting me or instructing me? What's the answer to that question? Well, I don't, I don't know. You'll never know. Listen to me very carefully. Two very important points. You getting what God wants to get from your discipline is not contingent upon your knowledge of what God is doing. You can get from God what God wants to give you without knowing what God knows. Someone says, well, you may understand it someday. That's just, that's in the book of second opinions. (laughs) It's not in the Bible. God doesn't promise superior knowledge one day. I'm, I'm guessing I'll die not knowing why all that happened. When I get to heaven, I won't care then. So never know. 
That's not the point. But just to encourage you from what, just again, from my experience, if you're wondering, God, what are you trying to teach me? The question is not that. Don't try to figure out what God's doing. Just learn the lesson. God, are you giving me instructive discipline? We could ask the question another way. Did you learn anything? <laughs> did, did you learn anything? Turn to the reproof. Turn to the discipline. Bear down now so you can bear up later. So Jesus did. Bear down now so you could bear up later. And all of the suffering that Jesus went through as a man living a perfect life enabled him literally to die a perfect death. In other words, he bore down for 33 years. If he wouldn't have, he wouldn't have been a perfect sacrifice and couldn't have died for us. So Jesus is the ultimate model of this. Bear down now so you can bear up later. Sinless life, 33 years, moment on the cross was effective. It wouldn't be if he wouldn't have borne down then. So whatever God has for the future, I don't know, could be worse suffering than now. People say, aren't you glad that's over with? It's behind you. Well, I hope it is, but God hasn't promised me that. But all we know is whatever comes our way, we can bear down now, which will give us the grace to bear up later. Now, um, we're going to end in Lamentations chapter 3, but I want to show you one thought because this story has a really, really tragic ending. It's found in Jeremiah chapter 28. Um, so <clears throat> Jeremiah's responsibility, and this is the reason why it's so difficult, was to go to all the people who were um, in leadership in Judah in the southern kingdom and tell them, stop. And it's interesting, Jeremiah is a prophet, so his words of prophets are words of judgment. But have you ever thought about this? A word of judgment is a word of hope. Because if God's giving you a strong prophecy, a strong challenge, that means there's still time to repent. And so the king was named Zedekiah, and God went to, or excuse me, Jeremiah went to Zedekiah and was trying to just plead with him to to change, to turn around. And here's what he said to him. I said Jeremiah 28, it's Jeremiah 27. So look at Jeremiah chapter 27, then we'll come back to Lamentations 3. Jeremiah 27, verse 12. To King Zedekiah, king of Judah, I spoke in like manner. Quote, this is 27, 12. Bring your necks under the, what's the next word? It's interesting, isn't it? Bring your necks under the yoke of the king of Babylon and serve him and his people and live. Now, this is a strange statement. God has one people. Those people have one promised land. That one promised land has one capital city, Jerusalem, and Zedekiah is in it. And God says to him, the one God who has one people, who have one land of one capital, leave it. Go. And Zedekiah couldn't understand that. He says, no, I'm, this is more precious to me than obedience. I'm just going to hang on to this thing. But God wasn't trying to punish him in that moment. God was trying to remove him from worse punishment. God was bringing his judgment down. And so he's giving this opportunity by this momentary discipline to save him from worse. In other words, he was saying to him, bear down now so you can bear up later. And the sad story is that he didn't. And you can read about it in Jeremiah 43. He's captured, uh, he's tortured, and his children are killed in front of him, and then he's killed himself. And he didn't bear down. So in this gospel context, Zedekiah is the anti-picture of Jesus. 
Jesus bore down in a thousand small ways and because of that, he bore up and even now he's bearing our sins. Romans 8, Hebrews 7, he is presently at the throne of the Father and the only reason we are existing as believers is because day and night Jesus Christ is giving intercession. It would not be possible if on earth he wouldn't have just borne down. Praise Jesus that he did. So, one more verse in Lamentations chapter three. Bear down now so we can bear up later. I wanna offer you one, one word of encouragement. Uh, some people think that the book of Jeremiah, it has five chapters, is composed in a certain way where the meaning is in the middle. So this is what we often do as a, we're giving a lecture, we say this is what I wanna tell you about. If we're telling a story, we get the meaning at the end. Uh, but what they would often do in Hebrew poetry is they would put the meaning in the middle. So just think about that. It has five chapters, so take out one and two, and four and five, that would make chapter three, the one we're reading, the middle chapter. So the meaning right there in the middle. It has 66 verses. Now the verses are a human in, or later invention, but it has 66 lines of poetry. So of the 66 verses, that would make verse 33 the middle, the middle of the middle. So look at verse 31 and let's read down to verse 33. For the Lord will not cast off forever. (laughs) Just, Just think about that. Are you suffering right now? The Lord will not cast off forever. If you have a pencil, write Psalm 103 right there and go read it. It says this, he does not deal with us according to our sins. Is there a more glorious verse in all the Bible? He does not deal with us according to our sins. But, verse 32, though he cause grief, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love. Verse 33, here's the middle of the middle. This seems to be the way he wrote this songbook, the point of the whole book. For he does not afflict from his heart or grieve the children of men. Does God cause affliction? Yes. But you can say, 1 John, God is love and he's eternal love. You can't say that God is eternal anger because the driving emotion of the Father is love. And so I don't know who needs to hear this tonight, but if you're going through suffering, can you know that of course the Lord will allow suffering. It's just the most obvious thing in the world. Of course he allows that. But his heart is not for us to suffer. And Arguably the worst book in the Bible. (laughs) The book of laments. The most painful, difficult book of the Bible has as its centerpiece this jewel. He does not afflict from his heart. He's not trying to punish you. He's trying to parent you. And maybe in a John 15 perspective, he's trying to show you how proud he is of your fruit production by giving you the opportunity to bear more fruit. So bear down, bear down now so we can bear up later. Father God, we are so grateful for your love for us, Father. God, you take care of us in so many different seasons and walking onto this campus and seeing some friends here is such a reminder to me of how you bore us up as a family and took care of us. Lord, we just offer you so much thanks for all that you do in our lives. And Lord, there are friends here tonight that are struggling, they're suffering. And their emotions feel like the first third of Lamentations 3. You've walled them in. You've hunted them like prey. And there's no relief. 
And so, Father, in Jesus' name, would your Holy Spirit bring comfort to them that you do not afflict from your heart, and if they bear down now, they will be able to bear down later. And Father, we thank you for the hope that we have in Jesus. And because of his bearing down on this earth, he bears us up eternally. We praise you for that, Father, and we pray it in his name. Thanks for listening to the North Richland Hills Baptist Church Sermon Audio Podcast. If you'd like more information about our church, go to nrhbc.org.